You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. Research for the Real World, conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape everyday lives. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Eathwaite and I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the UCL Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities at IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. In this season of Research for the Real World, we're highlighting IOE research that provides insights on finding ways for technology to play a meaningful role within education. We know that parents, teachers and students have concerns about the ways in which society may react to technology. But how can we improve our relationship with it? How can we maximise the use of high quality content? And is there a way we can take advantage of personalised learning? There's also all of that chat about AI. So on this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to Professor Alison Clark-Wilson. Alison is a former secondary school mathematics teacher and now works as a professorial research associate and is the research and impact lead at the UCL Knowledge Lab. Across her research career so far, she has a wealth of experience breaking down barriers between research communities and industry through her work with educational technology entrepreneurs, experts and end users all over the world. She has a particular interest in how edtech can be used to support maths education and is currently a fellow of the Institute of Mathematics and its Applications and is a member of the London Mathematical Society. Alison, I look forward to hearing more about your work and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Laura. So before we get started, Alison, we always like to ask our guests what got them into their line of research. So how did you get into educational research and technology in the way that you have done over the years? I think I've always been very, very curious person. Um, Even when I was a learner at school, particularly when I was learning mathematics, I was quite lucky to have my hands on an early calculator when they really weren't the thing. And I was one of those people who just wanted to know how things worked. I wanted to press all the buttons. I read the manual. I was a model model student in that respect. And that's never really left me. So every time a new technology comes along, very much with my sort of glasses, my maths glasses on, I'm looking at it, thinking about what it's bringing to the way that we learn and understand mathematical ideas and alongside what it might be taking away from what we value in the learning of mathematics and mathematical ideas. So the idea that, you know, the world isn't standing still. What we need to know in any subject is changing all the time. And so we need to be continually thinking about how the technology that's emerging is impacting on on you know what what we think is important to learn in, in school and, and beyond I can see uh, from your biography that you have worked all over the world in your math education research how has working in these different countries shaped your knowledge and your research I think it's so important that we look outside of the country that we live in and the culture and the context that we live in because as researchers you know we we try to come up with sort of fundamental ideas and principles but we only have to go to another country to realize how different they might look and I think a great example of that is in uh, my subject area where we go to other parts of the world and we have big international tests that assess how countries are doing with respect to maths and science for example the values that are 
underpin the maths and science that goes on in these different countries shapes everything about the way that the curriculum and the resources, the teacher training happens. So if we don't have that global perspective, um, we really blinkered. We're blinkered in the way that our work can impact more widely. And, you know, it's not just reading about the work of others, but going and experiencing what it's like to research in other countries, what it's like to work in teacher development or curriculum development in other countries. Um, it's just really important um, that we have that global perspective. Have you got any particular stories or highlights from some of these experiences that you've had along the way? Is there anything oh, that sticks out? Oh, lots and lots. But I think, <laughs> I mean, one was very fundamental. It was relatively early on when I started to work internationally. Um, and I was working as a volunteer teacher in South Africa on teacher education courses that were run by an amazing organization called AIMSEC that brought hundreds of teachers in for a weeks long residential to really support them with ideas of, of mathematics teaching teaching and, and content and pedagogy. And for these teachers, it was for a lot of them the very first time that they had their hands on any technology other than their phones. And it was a great example of really being humbled by passionate, people who really want to work to change the outcomes for learners in the country. And this was not, you know, it's pretty early post-apartheid period in, in uh, South Africa, where we were working with teachers who'd been denied access to mathematics education. They had learnt no algebra in school, and yet they were being expected to lead the way in the new curriculum reforms there. And it's the humility with which people approach, you know, being exposed to technologies that were completely new to them, and I'd come from a situation which was far more advanced and I had to go back to actually how do we switch on a computer for the first time? You know, how do we get past uh, switching on your data on your mobile phone so that you can actually access the internet? And what does it, what do you want to do when you go on the internet for the first time? And it just grounds you. It just grounds you to, to really think about what's really important to know and learn in this context first. And I think that one of the ideas that has always stayed with me from that is, you know, every experience with a new technology is a pilot. It's a pilot for us in individually um, and we we so often forget how much support we have to provide to those early experiences because if those early experiences aren't rewarding then there usually isn't a second <laughs> and you know we can see why you know we often see teachers and professionals rejecting technology for lots of good reason there's a, a great deal of support needed in those early stages but I'll probably come back to that later in the uh, in conversation. No that's great to hear Alison and it definitely sounds like those early experiences have definitely like sort or sowed the seed of the, the work that's kind of come on from since then. So this season, we're talking a lot about technology and how it can be used in a meaningful way in education. So I'd, just, I'd love to know more about what that looks like for you, particularly within the context of your project, the Global EdTech Testbed Network. Yeah, most certainly, Laura. I mean, it comes to this idea of piloting in some ways, but learning from each other around the world is crucial. And it's also important for the edtech industry because for many edtech entrepreneurs, the market in which they're developing their, their product, their app, their service or whatever it is, uh, can be quite small. I mean, in Europe, for example, where we have language barriers, it takes a lot to take an idea in one country or region and build a big enough market for you to be able to sustain and grow your business in one sense and also your user base which go hand in hand without that awareness of what's going on in other in other countries and, and jurisdictions so 
EdTech is global. I mean, the, the internet has given us that. But the network is where we actually have the opportunity to bring people together who are working in similar and, and very different circumstances to share their learnings, to in some ways join forces and 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 in some ways you know we have examples of of entrepreneurs getting together as a result of meeting in network events and and so on but but we you know we have to join forces work together because when you actually unpick the mission and vision for many edtech companies they want to impact education for many learners in in a wide scale and you don't get that by working alone so can you just touch a little bit more on what do you mean by impact do you mean like learning outcomes is it confidence you know what does impact mean to you and how does that maybe differ across you know the different parties that use edtech for example Great question, Laura, because everybody, I mean, impact has become very um, uh, trendy, which is a good thing, uh, because, you know, it's really forcing people to think about, well, what happens as a result of your product or service being taken up by your end users? Impact will in some ways be defined by the group or the, 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 the stakeholders who are putting time or effort into that particular edtech. So if it's the if it's those who are funding it, then undoubtedly their impact goals will be related to financial success of that product because that's the lens through which they're seeing impact. If you're someone who is um, investing or buying or, or giving time to learning how to use a particular edtech product or service, then impact for you will be in relation to the things on which you're measured. If you're a school, it might be learning outcomes through state or national or school tests and examinations. If you're a more, if it's a more societal set of values, so around mitigating learning loss, for example, or, or um, improving inclusion or, or thinking about real issues for marginalized learners, then your impact measures will be different again. And the same product viewed through a different impact lens can have a very different story. Um, and this is an interesting one because it, it does put, it's a challenge for the industry here because most ed techs want to t put themselves in their best possible light. So if you go on their websites, they're going to be very keen to put up the success stories. But I mean, one thing I'm strongly arguing is that we have a more transparent and open system and, and world in which we actually do, or we are prepared to tell the stories that maybe don't show our product in the best light. So what we do there is give honest information to those who might be looking to buy or invest or use our particular EdTech product to make a very responsible decision. And uh, a responsible industry and a responsible ecosystem would be open to letting people know about what might be shortcomings of their products and services, but also highlight what they're going to do as a result in order to improve or address that. No, that's really interesting. And I think it also links to the some of the things you were saying at the beginning about, you know, the fact that we live in a very technology-based world and it's constantly evolving and we constantly need to think. And so actually, you know, embracing that kind of continual change might really feed into that that transparency as well, for sure. So you did just sort of allude to a lot of the kind of conflicting goals across the different sort of stakeholders that exist within educational technology. What do you consider the kind of the common goals for everyone that is involved? So for maybe across students, parents and teachers, 
Yeah, I mean, I think the common goal is people are looking to make positive changes somewhere. <laughs> or like, well, let's say positive changes in terms of society or learning or professional outcomes or um, financial outcomes. These are all tangible things that in some ways you can measure. One of the biggest challenges we have around that is that these don't necessarily play in the same direction. So what you might want to do if you're designing or adapting your product or service to bring about the best financial returns may not ultimately be in the best interests of the learners. And I'm going to give a very, very clear example from my own subject area of mathematics. So many of the goals for mathematics education around the world are based on high stakes tests of really quite trivial mathematical ideas and knowledge, the stuff that you can easily assess. Can they add, multiply, solve this simple problem? And these are things that technology lends itself to really well. So over the years, we've got a plethora, I would argue far too many edtech products that really focus on the skills development and the assessment and, and feedback in relation to skills development. When actually, when we look out to the real world and the real, and this is research for the real world after all, but, but if we're looking at you know, what are the needs that we have in our citizens with respect to their mathematical literacy and their mathematical competencies, just to engage with the world that we live in now, it's a very, very different set of values to 100 years ago. So why, when we have digital tools that we can outsource some of the skills stuff now, why are we not embracing those and rethinking what we want to assess, because the assessment's driving all of that, to something that is much more valid in the world that we're living in now? So that's a big change for a lot of our stakeholders, because the world's really sort of wobbling right now. It's a little bit of the of the sort of outfall of chat GBT in the more language-driven subject areas. For maths, we've had digital tools that do a lot of this outsourcing for 20 years. <laughs> we haven't had the ground wobble for us yet, but it's coming. And that means our ed tech companies and the industry is going to have to rethink and reframe the sort of products and services that it's creating. And that's going to wobble that sector too. So, you know, we are at an interesting point in time with respect to the speed in which the educational technology, the actual functionalities and affordances of those technologies are, are racing ahead at. Um, but we've got to be prepared for that because the world is changing probably more quickly now than any of us envisaged that it might have done. How do you think we can be prepared for these, these kinds of changes, both either from the kind of the developer point of view, but even maybe like you know, us as students, a continual students ourselves, how do we be prepared for these kind of constant changes, as you as you mentioned? Yeah, I, mean, I think it is a really challenging, I mean, we've got a number of big projects going on internationally and nationally that are looking at this, you know, how do we reframe what school curricula look like? How do we reframe what assessment needs to be there? And I think there's two points I would make is one, we've always had a lot of attention on summative and formative assessment, which is very focused on sort of teaching. The missed form of assessment is ipsative, where essentially we are thinking about how we progress against a measure of ourselves and thinking about assessment more in in relation to the individual 
or in groups because you know learning is most productive when it's social and involves different subject areas different disciplines these things become more manageable when we stop worrying about criterion assessed as opposed to much more focused on individual progress and individual progress not at a micro assessed level which is a risk of educational technology but individual progress whereby the learner and those around the learner who are supporting the learner uh, making the decisions around where their learning is going and, and where they might need support or they might need to work with others and so on so it's really changing the whole way in which we think about the learner in this you know the learner owns their own data the learner is the one for whom you know the system should be constructed but doing that at scale is where the challenge comes in so you know schooling is trying to bring this together in a way that is more manageable so we have challenges in in how we reposition the learner in, in everything really mm. no that's really interesting I think it also then sort of stems into you know the things that we were talking about at the very beginning of like the, the kind of the common themes across this season is this also this idea of how to maximize personalized learning and so your ideas there about individual progress and what that means and how that can maybe feed into kind of those more personalized approaches I think is is really helpful so another large part of your work obviously you've been talking about all the interactions that you've been having with different stakeholders and you know working with not just in your ivory tower within the academic communities could you tell us a little bit more about what it's like to work with some of these stakeholders so we often hear about about tech bros and these seemingly large personalities. How do you go about nurturing humility in edtech? And is that even possible? Like, why would something like fake it till you make it just not work or even be acceptable in education? Yeah, it's a great question, Laura, and one that a PhD student of, of myself and Rose Luckin and Issa Mooney's done a lot of work on, which I'll come on to. I think it goes back to this mission alignment in that if, you know, ultimately we are all working to the same end, whether we are the teachers, the tech developers, the thoughtful impact funders that, and, and investors that are out there, is that, you know, we ultimately want that change to be some positive impact on the education system. So that helps. I think we get to that level of humility is by holding our hands up and saying, we don't know all the answers yet, nor do we ever expect to. And I think that's the important thing is I'm a social scientist and I don't believe that there is any one answer to anything out there. That, you know, collectively we have to draw on our ideas, our experiences, our technology products, you know, our situation in different schools and education systems. That all goes into the pot every time we have a conversation. And if I ever meet someone who really believes they found the answer, I possibly have have a level of uh, humor that allows me to just probe in and, and, and just allow people to drop their guard that little bit. The conversation a researcher will have with an edtech company is a very different conversation to a funder. And, you know, we have this culture of fake it till you make it because ultimately companies are expected to pitch their ideas as if they've made it. That's their story. They're telling the story of what they think will happen as an impact as a result of them building this thing that they need your money to build. So, I think that it's that shift in literally t putting that into the future tense. It's expressed as being in the past tense. If all we did is have that level of humility that says, 
this is where I'm coming from. These are my foundational ideas on which I'm building my product. This is what the people around say about my idea. <laughs> and, and this is the idea that I'm pitching to you. And, and that's why, you know, that's why I might need this, this and this in order to make that happen. I honestly think it's as simple as that because, you know, ultimately it's finding partners in a journey that align with your mission that are going to support you. And if you put out that pretense, then, you know, that's how we hear the Elizabeth Holmes uh, story play out is you know the reality is it wasn't there and worse than that the culture was uh, the company was siloed such that no one department would ever know that the other department wasn't working either so this brings me to Anissa's a really interesting PhD study that she did at UCL a few years ago which led to this idea of these six really important we call them superpowers of edtech companies that mean that they are most likely to go ahead and build impactful products. And this really touches on aspects of the leadership vision, of the uh, learning culture inside the company, on some level of research know-how within the company, of some action orientation. So if they learn things, they do something about it. They don't just sit on data that might uh, need them to address their products in some ways. But that sense that by understanding inside the organization your capacities the sorts of assets that you draw on in your company and the practices that you have inside your company that edtech companies can work as a team to be forever striving for the most impactful product that they can in the context in which they're working um, and i think that's the change that that broad awareness then really enables the company to be honest and transparent and be prepared to put on a website you know that you know this is what our, our product does really well now this is what we're working on because you know we want to also improve these aspects of it and that's how you build trust in the system yeah that sounds really interesting and I'd love to know a little bit more like in terms of these sort of six superpowers like how has the sector responded to those kind of ideas like you've mentioned that we need that shift like has there been any kind of you might not be able to sort of name names but have there been has there been a good response to that like have people gone you know what actually that's a really cool idea and I really embrace that element of trust that you that you've mentioned. Yes, I mean, I, you need to invite Anissa on because uh, she, she'll <laughs> be able sure. to speak much more fully about her own work. But even two years out, it's now being taken up as a tool in procurement processes, particularly for districts in the US, where they often will do due diligence. That means checking through to make sure that aspects of the product will fit for the schools that it's being purchased for. On the product itself, they'll have a little bit of the underpinning research, if there is any, but they really don't have their sense of, is this a company that we can form a long-term partnership with? And you know, for anyone buying an EdTech product, you are entering into a relationship with those product developers. Developers. You're putting a lot of trust in their system and their product. And what a lot of people increasingly realize, it's not about the products, it's about the people who are building them. And if we can form a relationship and we trust them and what they tell us about, about what, how their product is developing or how it might be best implemented or how they can help us to understand if it's working for our learners in our context, that this superpower assessment, which is essentially a bit like a Myers-Briggs personality test it's except it's something that is taken by the leadership team inside the organization 
really reveals what's what's going well and what aspects that company might need to work on. So it in itself is a formative tool to help the company to maybe employ new people into the team that bring in things that are missing or maybe look at how they communicate internally on some of the things that they're learning about as they build their products out. So that's one model is, is it used in procurement, but other companies are realizing it's just a great, nice badge to have. <laughs> um, and, and it really helps them to understand how they can recruit to really improve that leadership team so that they stay mission aligned because that's really what what it all all boils down to having I would say having empathetic funders uh, is also helpful so that means you know you sometimes you need people who are funding the investment into the edtech products that really understand education is a long game and it's a long game where there might actually never be an ending. (laughs) So this sense that, you know, you will be continually trying to understand if and how your product is working for the context that you're designing it for. And that will always have a cost as in that R&D budget, research and development is the sort of common budget that sort of would fund potentially educational research. It usually goes towards market research or it goes to usability research or user design research there needs to be this element that's looking at impact research. So I think as long as we can encourage educational technology companies to never take their eye off that impact ball, (laughs) then they will also have the confidence to know that they are doing something that is going to ultimately do good in the world somewhere. Definitely. And I think that also links very nicely to the stuff that you were talking earlier about the the global ed tech testbed network in terms of like, you know, often entrepreneurs, they're, they're entrepreneurs, they're not necessarily researchers. And so being able to make those connections to do that impact-based research, I think is really important. So you also mentioned that a lot of the technology that is out at the moment, particularly within the area of maths, is very focused around practice-based or the practice of specific skills. And I know in some of the, the research that I've done previously that you were very kindly part of our advisory group, that we found that the majority of the educational maths apps for young children had been very much focused on, like you say, the practice of very specific skills and not necessarily the translation of those kind of isolated skills into everyday life and other situations. So is there anything that you kind of have to comment on those findings, maybe in terms of, you know, how they're being researched, how they're being designed and, you know, ultimately, what does it mean for the children themselves that are using these forms of technologies? Yes, I mean, I certainly have um, a couple of comments in respect to that, Laura. I mean, the first one is around research methods. I mean, you and I are both researchers and we know that, you know, even when somebody comes along and says, we'd love you to research this thing, it's always a challenge to design the study, to think about which research methods are going to be appropriate. And one of the things that many of the products that are focused on the development of skills lend themselves to are the more quantitative studies. It's easier to say, well, there's a starting point and here's some engagement with the learner and the app and here's an outcome measure let's look and see how they did when they're working individually and answering questions that might only be right or wrong I mean that that sort of lends itself to those types of studies whereas actually and it goes back to my earlier point around what we value in mathematics if we actually want students and children to be applying these ideas in real situations sometimes with others sometimes bringing in ideas from outside mathematics so some application in the in their real world these need different methods and it is harder to 
design the more qualitative or mixed method studies that bring in these broader ideas. So fewer of those studies get funded and actually they tend to be more expensive because they require maybe to do interviews or go and observe. And, and they're also more difficult to report and get published. So we're slightly skewed by what appears in the research literature when we do a, a literature study. Also, some of the companies think that the quantitative methods are the, the desirable ones, that you know it's only really a very useful set of outcomes from a research study when we can do this, it works in a very, a very quantitative way. So I think, again, it's a level of humility here around accepting that a blend of different research studies will come together to tell a bigger story. So you know, we might have done a quantitative study, but we might also then want to look at a different design of study that puts the lens over a different aspect of what we're interested in. And, you know, for children and learning, it's so often about engagement, motivation, working with others, confidence. These aren't easy things to measure, but if you look at a group of kids working, you can somehow see them in, pra in practice. So my call would be for broader research studies that allow us to look at more of these facets of, of learning that we, we value as, as important uh, in young children. That's really interesting, Alison. And another thing that I've also been thinking of, so if you remember from the, the project that we did together a few years ago, we found that a large proportion of the top 25 most popular maths apps for young children didn't actually have any maths content in them when we, you know, sort of sat down and played with them ourselves. And so I was just wondering whether you have any kind of insights or kind of best practices or maybe a flag you want to stick in the ground in relation to how do ed tech developers market their, their products and how can they do that in a more transparent and sort of trustworthy way rather than it essentially just being sort of trying to sell all the time and kind of meet their sort of their budgetary requirements, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always interesting. And, and my take on that, particularly when it's um, apps and, and resources being designed for very young children is many of us would think that our experiences of being a young child and having learned some early maths would qualify us perfectly to be able to design something for that age group. So there's this slight misassumption that just because we've done and mastered those ideas, we really understand things like cardinality and ordinality of of numbers, of whole numbers, or we really understand how important it is that children get opportunities to do sorting activities and comparing activities in very sort of tangible, pragmatic ways when they're developing their early ideas of mathematics. So there is this slight problem in that, you know, I, I have a number of researchers that I know who are very expert in early numeracy, early ideas in mathematics, and that research is completely overlooked. So there's that challenge around the fact that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what the age is, <laughs> we need to be able to, to access and, and find ideas from research that are going to inform the design of our products. So that's me being uh, erring on the side of the entrepreneurs in that, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And the most important thing is that you can find ways to fill those gaps. So actually reach out to people who do know and do advise on those aspects. On the marketing side, I, I think this is very much 
much a pressure coming from the sort of the financial side of things and the goals with respect to growing businesses and growing sales to keep companies alive and afloat. And I, again, I, I mean, we, we basically have to call out, you know, we have to encourage those parents, teachers who are investing in those products to rate, to rank, to give feedback on whether or not they feel that it is doing what it does on the tin, because ultimately, I think it's the marketing side that would lead the companies to change. Um, I think when sales start to fall and they find reasons why, then that's a bigger driver to them rethinking their marketing messages or addressing the gaps in their products. So I think this is an interesting where the market forces, if there is a conduit for that feedback, and certainly um, platforms like EdTech Impact give opportunities for that level of feedback to companies, then ultimately that will help to improve the quality of the products and the marketing messages within them. Finally, before we go, what's next for you on your agenda in this, you know, global ed tech mission? (laughs) Yeah, so I've got a couple of really interesting uh, projects, uh, one current and one that's uh, just around the corner. Uh, The first is really looking at how we can bring that network, the Global EdTech Network, together to find some areas of common interest. And one of the areas that we started to work on with a project that's been funded by Jacobs Foundation is looking at the way that we develop, we call them test beds, but these might be real world opportunities for EdTech entrepreneurs to design, implement, evaluate their ed techs in a very close relationship with the end users. This is particularly focusing on the school education sector to begin with. But what we're learning from the work we've been able to do so far is that A, there is a common interest in designing more systemic ways of doing this. So by systemic ways, this means that we have testbed opportunities that allow a pipeline of ed techs to come into, connect with lots and lots and lots of different schools and teachers and educational settings and involve regular and sustained ways of working with researchers so that we can all share our expertise, knowledge and practices such that we all learn. So, you know, researchers learn to develop better methods, for example, and schools and teachers get opportunities to try technologies first and, and if Uh, inform the way that those technologies design and this is really what the edtech entrepreneurs and the early startups are desperate for that opportunity to get closer to their end users I haven't met an edtech company that hasn't wanted to do that ever it's been the mechanism for it so you know when we've got a whole world full of teachers and schools that need to be supported to develop their digital capacities and competencies then one way to do that is to allow for these close engagements. Now, the challenge or the risks, if you like, to these models is time, space, who pays. So these are some of the things that this global network is really looking to see how we can support different governments and regions to think about this in a more systemic way, to simultaneously address the need to support teachers to continually upskill on their digital skills alongside providing opportunities for the best ed tech products to be iterated on to try to address the educational challenges in that particular country or region. And in an early project meeting we had earlier this year, you know, we had a Minister of Education from Malawi in the room with major funders of ed tech from South America alongside key people from some of the educational foundations who are providing a lot of philanthropic 
philanthropic money into the sector, grappling with what that might look, need to look like in low, middle or highly resourced edtech ecosystems. So an exciting project that really looks to be providing an opportunity to share knowledge and practice on a global scale, but hopefully influence the way in which the direction of travel might happen around the world for the next five or 10 years. The second project is building on Nisa Mooney's PhD, and this is quite exciting because at the time of we're recording here, we are into the final stages of a quite prestigious edtech competition in the US called the Tools Competition. And if Nisa is successful in winning that competition or, or being one of the prize winners there, her company, which is Gold Star Ed, will be developing a set of visualizations that can be used for procurement for two edtech districts in the US. So we're very excited about that. And alongside that, it looks as though there may be a partnership with another key organization in the US that will be looking to scale that across a wider number of districts through 2023, 2024. So exciting news on that one. And uh, I'm sure that will get released through an IOE comms channel if and when we hear the result of that. But um, in both cases, it's really, really trying to scale and sustain the knowledge and expertise that will lead to the most impactful ed techs around the world that really serve our teachers, learners, parents to, to the best we can. That's great. And uh, every, everything cross, not just fingers, toes, everything. <laughs> and yeah, good luck with all of it. You know, like I say, you're doing some fantastic work and it's, it's great to see that, you know, I know it's in our title, but, you know, the research being translated into the real world for real impact and ultimately helping, you know, children, parents, end users, whoever they may be um, in really meaningful ways. So, yeah, congratulations and, um, yeah, good luck with all your all your future work. Thank you very much, Laura. You can follow Alison on Twitter at Ali Clark Wilson. That's A-L-I-C-L-A-R-W-I-L-S-O-N to learn more about her research. Some of what we've covered today is also available in the episode notes. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we have an archive of 19 past seasons, just search IOE Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts to find episodes of Research for the Real World, as well as more podcasts from IOE. And a quick favour before you go, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate it if you could give the IOE Podcast a rating. Five stars would be nice if you're enjoying the show, and this will help us to reach more people who are interested in hearing about such important work. I'm Laura, and thank you for listening. Research for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications and IOE Research Development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagin is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 